So in our, ser- in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, we've highlighted this phrase, Jesus made this statement. I will fulfill, or I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill all that which the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament spoke to. It was an astounding statement. It was not a popular statement with the Pharisees and all of their friends. And so we're taking time to address this one statement over the next number of weeks. Surely, through his active and passive obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ indeed fulfilled what the law and the prophets spoke of in regards to the Messiah. Of course, there's more to come. The New Testament defines the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as the very foundation of our faith. No death and resurrection of Jesus, no Christian faith. And so we're taking time to address and ask this one question. Why did Jesus die? What was the purpose? Why was it necessary? We're laboring over the next number of weeks to simply state and to help us understand that the death of Christ is not a disposable add-on to the gospel accounts. It's not something that you can take or leave depending on how you feel or what you think. It is indeed intrinsic to the entire biblical text from Genesis to Revelation. It is of immense personal importance for each and every single person. For the believer in Christ, it has eternal value and good comfort. My pastor describes the Bible as God's unfolding drama of redemption. What took place in the Garden of Eden was spiritual death and separation from God. One act of disobedience had massive implications for the entire human race. Indeed, Paul said, just as one man through one man came, uh, came into the world through what, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. God is not passive and from the foundation of the world has set forth his son as the remedy to the problem of sin. And that is what we are focused on. The design, pers- the divine pursuit and effecting of reconciliation was through a path of suffering and tears via the breathtaking humility and obedience of one, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
back towards the beginning of your Bible, Leviticus chapter 17, just three books in. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Brothers and sisters, the blood-stained pages of your Old Testament detail and point to a sacrifice that is stunning in its application and founded upon unfathomable grace, which is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, this narrative, this picture, this story of sacrifice is built and detailed and prophesied until that day. When we turn the pages of the Old Testament to the New Testament, there is a startling cry. That surely reverberated throughout the Judean countryside. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That moment when John the Baptist catches Jesus coming up over the hill, lifts his eyes and said, that's the one, he's here. All that you've read in your Hebrew scriptures, all that has been detailed about one who would come, he is now come. And I am not worthy to stoop down, to stoop down, he said, and untie his sandal. He identified him as the Lamb of God that truly fulfills brings to completion that which the law and the prophets were speaking to. Last week we developed the sub-narrative involving the concepts of garden and wilderness. Paradise was lost in the garden of Eden. Twelve times over we're told in the first three chapters of your Bible. That Eden was a garden, a garden, a garden. It's called the garden of God. The wilderness is projected and understood as a forsaken and a barren place. That speaks well to our condition before God in which we are separated from him. Life without God. And yet, the scripture will tell us that the wilderness is where God will do his finest work. Indeed, Matthew chapter 3, we're just a couple chapters into the New Testament. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in 
the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, this is Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. The Lord himself will make a way in that barren, forsaken place. That is where salvation Emerges. So we see there in Matthew chapter 3 that good news was announced in the wilderness. And ultimately Jesus, through his suffering and death, would reclaim fellowship with God in a garden. Specifically, Jesus was betrayed in a garden. He was crucified in a garden. And he was resurrected in a garden. Mary, when seeing the empty tomb, clearly did not know who Jesus was. She simply thought he was the gardener because that empty tomb was in a garden. Now to showcase... The significance of Jesus' death and to highlight its intended meaning. I take you this morning to a well-known passage, but often, I think, underappreciated. Luke chapter 22. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn or scroll to the third gospel, the third book in the New Testament. Luke Chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, we read this. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drop, great drops of blood falling to the ground. You might know that Luke, being a physician, Luke has great attention to detail. Luke's gospel is long. Luke has a lot to tell you. Luke wants to make sure that you and I have an accurate depiction of who Jesus is, why he came, why he did what he did. It is Luke who highlights this specific Occurrence to set the scene. Jesus knows the hour is coming. Jesus knows why he came into the world. John put it very well to destroy the works of the devil. Now, with all due respect, he's not going to do that through his excellent teaching. There's got to be something more. Jesus is now facing and approaching his final hour. But I want you to consider something. 
Since the time of Jesus in the Christian era, you probably know there have been thousands upon thousands of martyrs who have laid down their life for the sake of the gospel. In fact, as far as we know, there are more today than there have ever been. The world is not welcoming to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's something about these martyrs, many of which we know about. Those who laid down their life for Christ, those who chose the path of suffering, even death, for the name of Christ, so often did so joyfully. They did so singing hymns. Just read the, the history of the Reformation. All these guys who were burned at the stake, it's a known thing. They went with confidence. They went singing praises to God, even in the midst of great physical anguish, obviously, and looking their final hour in the eye. But Jesus did not do that. Did Jesus' followers outdo their master? Why is Jesus at this moment for the first time ever requesting, if possible, that we reconsider the plan for today? Read your Gospels. Not one time. Does Jesus turn to his father and say, if it is possible, remove this cup? We're angling at the question, why did Jesus die? And I'm asking the question, why are these few verses in our New Testament? I believe they point powerfully and directly to the meaning and the purpose of the death of Jesus. It cannot be said that Jesus was shrinking back merely because of the physical agony that he would soon endure. We do not diminish the physical suffering of the crucifixion. We know that he was humiliated we know that he was whipped, that he was beaten. We know that he collapsed under the weight of the cross that he bore for you. We know all of that. And no, I don't want a piece of that. But let's not forget, lots and lots of people have been crucified. He wasn't the only one. Is the physical suffering the totality that explains the reason for Jesus' actions in this passage? It says that Jesus was in agony. You might know that there is a physical condition in which people do sweat drops of blood. 
And it is connected to extreme, extreme stress or anxiety. I'm going to say it wrong. The capillaries around your glands, they burst. And that's what causes it. I'm not a medical doctor. You can look it up. But why was Jesus sweating drops of blood in this moment? Why was he begging and requesting of his heavenly father that if possible, this cup be removed? And what cup is he referring to? Why is he asking that this be done in a different way? If he is merely shrinking back from dying and agonizing death in a physical sense, he is no better than those who would come after him. Because they did it a lot better. Saints, stop. Think this one through with me. I submit to you a number of things. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God is often referred to using the analogy of the cup, the chalice, of the wrath of God. I submit to you that Jesus full well knew why he came and he full well knew what was ahead. That in moments, that is in the very near future, Yes, he would die. And oh, it would be excruciatingly painful. In fact, you might know that that word excruciating that we know that we use actually comes from crucifixion. Come from crucifixion. Ex crucifixion. From the crucifixion. The pain that is associated with a crucifixion is beyond our ability to really adequately even describe. But that is not why the Son of God for the first time is shrinking back and begging and asking if it is possible for this to be done a different way. Another way. Saints. It is in these moments that the Son of God would bear in His body and in His soul the entirety, the full, the unmitigated wrath of holy God upon sin. When He who knew no sin would become sin for us. He would not only bear our sins, as Isaiah would say in chapter 53, but He would become our sins. As scripture tells us in the Old Testament, that the one on the tree is cursed. Now think this through with me for just a moment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal, unbroken, perfect, harmonious fellowship that is beautiful with his heavenly father before you and I ever existed before creation ever existed the father the son the holy spirit perfect unity unbroken in a moment that that fellowship would be smashed because of your sin because of my sin 
Why am I getting a little amped up about this? Because I do not ever want us to undervalue the death of Jesus Christ. Because in culture today, that is the way the death of Christ is presented. Take it or leave it. Man, that was, that's, a, that's amazing. He laid down his life for people. We should follow that example. Listen, you could never follow his example. You could never bear the sins of others because you're a sinner too. Saints, give thought to this passage. The Son of God kneeling down. And don't forget what, what's surrounding this, this little passage here. We didn't read it. But his closest followers, as you might know, fell asleep. As Jesus, as darkness is closing in, in every way, he was forsaken. Those who were sworn to follow him, they were AWOL. You know the rest of the story. When Jesus died, the sun didn't shine. The dead came out of their graves. The veil was torn. It was no ordinary death. There's a few things I want to highlight this morning. Throughout our time looking at the atonement, at the death of Christ, we're going to acquaint ourselves with theology terms. There's some big ones. Propitiation. I mean, who uses these words today? But I want you to know a couple things. These theology terms that are big and maybe a little intimidating, they're not made up by theologians in some ivory tower. They're right in our Bibles And I want us to see what these terms mean. So here's one for this morning. Here's the first one. This is one I guarantee you that you did not use this past week. Oblation. Do you ever talk with your friends about oblation? No, you do not. Oblation is in your your Old Testament. It is used often. Particularly if you're using the King James. It's not as... Use as much today or in more of the modern translations. Oblation means an offering or a sacrifice. Not complicated. A sacrifice, an offering that is made in the place of someone else or something else. The backstory to the Garden of Gethsemane is that Jesus himself would be offered as an oblation, as an offering, as a sacrifice. He would be offered as an oblation for my sins and for yours. Because contrary to the entire Muslim faith, he is unable to simply snap his fingers and say, you're forgiven. Because if he did that, his holiness would suffer loss. His justice would suffer harm. No. Reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness takes place through the path of oblation. 
and your entire Old Testament, the pages that you turn, they are stained with blood. And we're going to unpack that next week. Just how messy and bloody the entire Old Testament is. Because God is holy and we are not. Key gospel term, reconciliation. You hear me using this often. To reconcile, you might know, means to take two parties who don't like each other, who are estranged from one another, who are at odds with one another, and you bring them together. It doesn't just happen. It's reconciliation. You're bringing them here and here, and you're saying, okay, now we're going to bring you together. That is the term that Scripture uses because of the death of Christ regarding sinful people and holy God. Except it doesn't put it like two parties moving towards one another. It's God coming towards us. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Second Corinthians chapter 5, I mentioned it before. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the verses around that speak of reconciliation. I'll leave you with this parting shot. Beyond pointing to the true meaning of the death of Christ, saints, please don't miss this. He loves you. As we walk through the blood-soaked pages of your Bible... I want you to emerge with a deeper and more fuller understanding and to actually believe truly how much and how deeply and how unconditionally God loves you. This is the Son of God. This is the one from all eternity, perfect fellowship with His Father. Who voluntarily, as he said, I laid down my life by myself. This was not just another good guy losing his life. He endured and absorbed the full wrath of God upon you, upon him, for your sake and for mine. And he does it because he loves you. There was no other way. Jesus in his humanity agonized. If there is any other way, can we please take that way? Oh, but Father, not my will, but yours. I've come to do your will. I will obey. I will submit. And Jesus, as he collapsed under the weight of your cross and mine, took the wrath of God upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, 
quoted in the Gospels. Because at that moment, in that period of time, Jesus, the Son of God, was absolutely separated from his Father. Because God cannot look upon sin and cannot have fellowship with sin. And Jesus became sin. Please, this week, give consideration to these few verses. Reflect on them. Meditate on them. Think about them. Those drops of blood. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, when we consider how deeply you love us, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would refresh us, that you would rejuvenate us, that you would sustain us. Comfort and lift up our heads. We know that in this world and in this life, we face many trials and tribulations. But being separated from you is not one of them. Father, we pray that the simplicity and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be clear. This morning to all in my presence or those hearing the sound of my voice today or later on. That we would not merely view the death of Christ as a story that we've heard many, many times that we get used to. But the vivid language and the imagery that we will begin to unpack from the Old and the New Testament would not be lost on us. As Jonathan Edwards say, we pray that you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs. That we would know and perceive and understand all that you have done to reconcile us. For any who have not responded in faith to our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would acknowledge their need and joyfully turn to you and put their faith, their trust, their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for this account that Luke alone brings to us. The agony that our Lord suffered on our behalf. We acknowledge his disposition of complete surrendered obedience to you. We acknowledge his humanity in begging the question, is there another way to get this job done? 
as he who knew no sin became sin for us, became a curse for us. Thank you for that old rugged cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.